This is a Nerdwoods special report. We go now live to Doom and Fitz. Hey gang, you're listening to the Nerd Blitz with Doom and Fitz. I'm Doom. And I'm Fitz. And this is just a quick little intro we're trying to do for our latest .5 episode. Here it is again. We did a fucking experimental podcast type thing. Mm-hmm. Right? Right. Years ago. Yeah. Uh, at this point, three years ago. Well, two and a half years ago. And I was just looking. We posted this exactly five months before we launched the pod. It was November 16th, 2015. Wow. Ain't that fucking crazy? It's pretty crazy. How close in time or the relation to when we started this was? Mm-hmm. Well, it really was like the um, the proto-podcast. Yeah, but I mean, specifically, it's like it was exactly five months before. The other one, I think we posted a day before what would become our anniversary a year later. Yeah. It's just fucking weird. Like, it was meant to be. <laughs> mm-hmm. Anyway, but uh, in this one, what we did was we read issue 17 of the old Marvel Star Wars comics, which was pretty fucking cool. It was, wasn't it like a seven samurai type of thing? Um, Or no, that was the other one we no, did, or another typecast. Yeah, no, this, wasn't this the one with um, Luke and the race through Beggar's Canyon? Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah, it was a prequel to episode four. Yeah, exactly. And it was called Crucible, which funny, there was actually an EU novel a few years ago called Crucible. Oh yeah, there was. That's funny, Last Jedi was a title that was around in the old comics and they used it for a uh, title of a novel a couple years back and now it's episode 8. That's fucked up how they reuse titles like that. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, yeah, basically what it was is we had an email conversation and then recorded our halves and you edited it together. Yeah, it is like a sort of podcast yeah it's real kind of stiff because it's us reading like hello this is us talking about this comic book yeah when i when we re-released the first one a couple weeks ago it was like ugh, this is this is bad it is <laughs> at the time at the time i was like oh this is cool look at us it's like we're doing a show yeah to me it was fun because it was an experiment yeah and i re-listened to it and i was like oh fuck this is stiff it is but the funny thing is and i'm not going to name names but the funny thing is I've heard actual podcasts that have lots of listeners yeah. that sound like that. And it's like, who the fuck listens to this shit? Because mm-hmm. there's a book podcast out there that I listened to a few times because they talked about a series that I really fucking loved. And it's a pretty big podcast, or at least pretty decent. Decently big, I mean. And I listened yeah. to it, and it's like, I got halfway through, and it's like, I can't handle this shit. I don't know how people listen to this on a bi-weekly basis. And I'm not talking yeah. about book club, goddammit. <laughs> Now, book club's not robotic sounding. No. It's long and boring, but at least it's us talking like a regular conversation. Yeah. We're not reading off cue cards the whole time. Exactly. There's some sort of level of interest. But right. it fucking kills me how people are like, this week we're going to talk about this. Yeah. Yay. But anyway, yeah. People were asking me, though, after the first one, that's why I wanted you to do this intro with me, and I'm trying to be quick about this. But people were asking me, though, about what it was like for you to edit it together because that's a lot of audio to stitch together even though we recorded it like linearly yeah that's a lot of fucking audio to stitch together in a weird way like that yeah i don't remember it being that bad we did it in like sections so it wasn't like i had the whole thing at once yeah i think that partially was by necessity for me because i would have to read part save it as a windows audio file or no, I had to save it as a video, didn't I? As a I? video, yeah, I think so. And then I had to catch Wi-Fi and send it to you like that, so you were getting it chunks at a time, I think, is why it worked out like yeah. that. Yeah. 
I think you're right. And then it wasn't terrible. It was, um, I had to have like the, uh, the conversation printed out. So I knew which pieces went where. Mm -hmm. And see, that's another thing you did too. You sort of moved some things around. So it made it flow better too, because in that, what we did was like, I'd ask you five questions and you would reply to five questions and I would reply to four and you would reply to two and you sort of move shit around to make it flow better. So it didn't seem so disjointed and like five minutes of me talking. Yeah. Or we, yeah. Or we'd go back and like Reference. finish talking about yeah something yeah. else i'd move that into a different section so that it was the context was a little better mm -hmm. and like i said it made it more linear and it flowed a little bit better yeah yeah so there was some thought and effort put into it it wasn't like it wasn't just copy and paste but mm -hmm. it, it wasn't it wasn't awful yeah but yeah i had a couple people asking me about it and it's like well fuck it i'll have him talk about it yeah that's the only thing I remember the most is like just making sure that the pieces all fit in the right order so that the conversation made sense. Yeah. And I remember after we did that first one, people being like, even as robotic and shitty as that sounds, which I can admit it does. People were like, God damn, you two are good together. And they said that after <laughs> we did all those typecasts together, too. Like, yeah. You guys are good together. You've got a nice flow, a nice rapport. And then the second one came out and people were like, come on, you guys have to do this. Mm -hmm. And then it was about a month in a week or a month and a half after we re released this that we did the uh, episode seven pod. Yeah. And set the internet on fire. Except not at all. Except, yeah, kind of the opposite of that. And it was funny, though, the way it was a slow build, like seven months, then one month, and then five months, four months after the episode seven pod went up, we launched. Yeah, it's like one of us was dragging their feet or something. No. <laughs> I mean, you're making a joke, but no, nobody was dragging their feet, were they? No. I mean, I was a little bit, I think. Why? Were you scared? A little bit. I was a little, not scared, but like hesitant to like take on the commitment, probably. Yeah. Yeah, because at that point we were working on the camping trip too, weren't we? Mm, yeah, I think so. I think we were working yeah. on that. Yeah. Because I started writing it when we went to see uh, Star Wars before that. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, and I and I still had the was still holding out the uh, hope that the other pod was going to keep going. And I would lose or, your email. Or, uh, no. <laughs> but the. Uh, me and Molly would keep doing ours, but uh, and I was like, oh, fuck, I don't think I can do two. Well, turns out that never really came back together. But yeah, that's another funny thing, because somebody asked me once, like they sort of made it. It's sort of like that asshole that I jokingly told you and Spider Scooby that was like some friends. They are. They don't even follow your other account. I used to get shit like that a lot. And I told you both like, ha ha ha. And you're both like, oh, I feel bad. But it was sort of like that where it was like, nice job fucking replacing his sister. And it's like, whoa, I didn't replace his sister. They went like four months without an episode dickhead no you didn't replace nothing i would have done i would have just done done them both but it just didn't neither one of us has you know the time to really commit yeah yeah i know but that's the thing it's like motherfucker i'm and i'm not shit talking i listened to your pod and you know i liked it or else i wouldn't have fucking done those intros for it but it's like motherfucker it's not like they were releasing episodes you know yeah it had gotten so spotty because it was so hard to line up those schedules and it's like i'm not replacing shit but yeah I don't think I've ever told you that before. Mm -mm. No, you hadn't. Yeah, well, there you go. That's something mm. I've had rattling around in the back of my brain for a while. Is after we launched the pod, somebody was like, Nice job replacing his sister, you dick. <laughs> so there's that. Huh. 
People are fucking assholes, man. They kind of are. But anywho, yeah, that's basically it. This is uh, the second experimental podcast we did. I, From what I remember, I haven't listened to it, but from what I remember, this is a bit better than the first one because like, I had more experience uh, recording and shit with doing the videos and all that shit. You had more experience cutting, even though it was just a couple more episodes still. Mm-hmm. you know. So I think we yeah. both sound a little better and the cutting on it sounds better too. So there's that. Yeah. And it was a good story, too, that we talked about. I know, right? There was a lot of cool, um, even though it's all legends now, but uh, there were some cool uh, references and, I don't know, just different stuff. Yeah, this is one of those things that they could have easily left canon, even though, like, it had been wiped from, quote, canon decades ago. Mm -hmm. Because those Marvel comics got so hokey that I think they were just like, no, they're fun little stories that you can read, but they're not anything to worry about. Yeah. This is one of those stories I feel like they could have left canon and it still stands up. Yeah. Because it's good like that. But anyway, yeah. Is there anything else you want to say about this? No, not really. Hopefully it's enjoyable. Yeah. I was really hoping to listen to it before we recorded this, but just didn't have time. Oh, well. I'll listen to it after it's edited together. But anywho, real quick, I'll do our thank yous. Thanks to at the J Sarge for our music. Thanks to at Sherry Says for our logo. Thanks to at JP Montgomery for taking them pictures of the lovely Lady Logan in our merch thanks to at looking for eight for the knights of nerd blitzdom um as for our shit find us on itunes google play stitcher tune in soundcloud we're part of the high i went too fast and started stumbling mm-hmm. try that again i'm i gotta fucking rewind the tape a bit hang on gotta get the <laughs> pencil in there and pull it back in what <laughs> Okay. We're part of the High Altitude Podcast Network at highaltpod.net and find everything we do at nerdblitz.com. Get yourself some merch by going to redbubble.com slash people slash nerdblitzpod slash shop. Um, get all three of our audio albums at tsdjaproductions.bandcamp.com. That's The Camping Trip, The Nerd Blitz Pilot Trio, and The Laughing Bird. And then go read this. Again, it was originally published as... Typecast 16. Go read Typecast 16 at tsdjaproductions.wordpress.com. Other than that, I'm at the Scooby Doom. You are at Fitzman73. And together we're at Nerd Blitz Pod. Is that everything? I think that's everything. I didn't do a voice to open this. Holy shit, what's wrong with me? I don't know. Too much to keep track. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, waiting on you. Bye. Come back next time. Our sanity depends on it. <laughs> paying attention to our read-throughs of these old Marvel Star Wars comics, we're skipping ahead a bit this time around to issue 17, which is a standalone prequel to episode 4. Before we get balls deep into it, you've said before that finding issues back then was hit and miss. Is this one of the issues you were able to pick up back in the day? You know, I honestly don't remember. I don't think so. This issue didn't ring any bells the first time I read it in the omnibus, but it's possible. I'll check it in a minute. This is a really odd issue, and you're right, it really is a prequel, and it's really crazy how similar some of it is to what we would see in Episode 1, or even in the EU novel Kenobi that came out a few years ago. Interesting. Without getting too far ahead of ourselves, it was definitely memorable for me, but I'll get into that later when we get into the story. I still haven't read Kenobi, but yes, this issue feels like it has been really influential to a lot of stuff in the years since. Let's get into it, starting with the cover. What do you think of it? I like the cover, actually. It felt like a movie poster. 
It incorporates elements from the story that were more or less depicted accurately, unlike some of the bait-and-switch covers we saw earlier in the series. It's not terribly busy either, and the colors are all sane choices, again, not like the whacked-out, bright, gaudy colors we've seen before. Agreed. And it truly gives the feel with no weird crap like those first ten. I will admit, though, that the cover scared me, seeing SPECIAL ISSUE! And knowing that it's a standalone story made me think this was going to be nothing but BS filler worth less than the paper the original was printed on. Was shockingly wrong in that assumption. There's no interior credit for the cover artist, but you can see the person's signature in the bottom left corner, and unless I'm very much mistaken, this cover was done by legendary X-Men artist Dave Cockrum, who had a long run with Chris Claremont on that book in the 70s. Which brings me to my first revelation with this issue, and that is the plot of the story is actually credited to who? Chris Claremont. Small world the 70s were. Yeah, I'd say given Claremont's involvement, that's a safe bet. I've never read his X-Men run, but I know it's beloved. If this is any indication of his work on that, that must really rock, man. But stay on target. Let's talk a bit about the art before we get into the story. Any panels pop out for you? Well, you know, I'm pretty nitpicky, and while I'm a total mark for Herb Trimpey's artwork, what stood out the most for me, unfortunately, is how much Aunt Beru did not resemble Aunt Beru. Did it bug you as much as it did me? Some of the other designs were a bit funky, but she was like, who in the fuck is this supposed to be? I don't know if it bothered me as much as it did you, but it was jarring for damn sure. She almost looks like Margot Kidder as Lois. Certainly nothing like the kindly old Aunt May type that the movie showed. I thought it was her hot sister or something, or the maid. The only other thing that stuck out to me as strange was Uncle Owen. He looks more like Kleeglars than Owen. Nothing else stands out as bad or out of place. Though those skyhoppers are something I'd consider a funky design. What are the other things that felt funky to you? Actually, I take it back. I flipped through this again real quick, and Baru was really the only funky design, except for Luke's Daydream Space Battle. Those ships are pretty non-Star Wars-y. Actually, the one at the top of page 302 looks almost exactly like the fighters that would show up a few years later in the Buck Rogers TV series. Also in the panel, the pilot in the foreground, Luke, I think, is a dead ringer for Ace, the Sky Striker pilot in the old G.I. Joe books. Almost the exact same pressure suit, in my opinion. I like that daydream for a specific reason. Luke is stuck on this dusty old dirt ball with no connection to anything. Sure, he wants to go off and join the Academy, but he probably hasn't seen anything more than distant flashes in the sky, so I like that the art doesn't look specifically Star Wars-y. The random sci-fi look fits perfectly. The skyhoppers are pretty accurate, though. They're definitely odd, but that's pretty close to what they're supposed to look like. These have kind of a protruding nose cockpit, though, and I think in canon they have flat fronts. Those skyhoppers are canon? They almost look like scaled-down versions of shuttle Tidarium. Yeah, they're canon. There's one in A New Hope. You know when Luke is fixing up the droids and the scene starts with him on the couch playing with a model spaceship thingy? That's a skyhopper. I don't think I ever noticed that. I guess a rewatch is in order to try to spot it. You get to fly one in a mission in the old N64 Rogue Squadron game, too. I think that was the first actual rendering of it outside of that little model in the original movie. Oh, and nope, I was wrong. Just looked up images of a skyhopper, and their fronts are almost exactly as depicted in the comic. Not flat at all. Some of the angles on the images, though, produce kind of an optical illusion that makes it look flat at first. But in profile, they're definitely not flat. Wings fold up, too, just like the Shuttle T. Overall, I'm pretty happy with the art for the first time in the 11 issues we've gone through. I think the Banthas, which we know from previous issues have been hard for artists to nail, 
look impeccable. Biggs looks like Biggs. The sand people look like bloody sand people. Well, you can thank Herb Trimpey for the art. I'm a big fan of his work on the 82 G.I. Joe series. This issue is pretty distinctly his style. They look like they could have come straight from the pages of a Joe comic. For example, page 304, second panel on the bottom. That's a generic Joe if I've ever seen one. I noticed your generic Joe for sure. Side note, he also drew the first appearance of Wolverine. He drew Wolvie. That's why the noses look so familiar. There were a few spots like page 310 where the noses just stuck out as something I should recognize, but I couldn't place it. It's no surprise that this issue was good, or at least leaps and bounds better than the ones we've already talked about. The creative team on this single issue is insane. Roll Call, Dave Cockrum, iconic X-Men artist, does the cover. Herb Trippy on pencils. Al Milgram does the inking. Plot by mother effing Chris Claremont. And to top it all off, it's actually written by Archie Goodwin, whose resume is a mile fucking long. Name a comic in the 70s and he either wrote on it or edited it. Guaranteed. He was the first writer on the original Iron Man solo series. He created the character of Luke Cage, co-created the first Spider-Woman, and was editor-in-chief of Marvel for a spell. Ladies and gentlemen, school is in session and your professor for this week was just Fitz, dropping nerd knowledge all up in your faces. If this issue would have sucked, I think I would have had to burn my comic book nerd card. Well, it's for sure a stellar fucking lineup. And if folks don't know who Archie goddamn Goodwin is, they need to go educate themselves on what comic books are. It would have been a major screwing of many pooches for this to suck. Like, something seriously cosmically fucking wrong. Speaking of that Rogue Squadron game, the mission in that game is one of the things I thought of when reading this issue. It's also a Beggar's Canyon run in a Skyhopper. I always thought that was the first time you see Beggar's Canyon, but no, it happens in this very issue from like 15 to 20 years before. It's close enough in resemblance that I wouldn't be surprised if the game designers used this issue for inspiration. Speaking of Beggar's Canyon, let's just get into the story, because I can't think of anything to say about the art besides, DAMN IT'S GOOD! Our story starts with Luke in the cockpit of the Millennium Falcon, where he starts reminiscing about his days back on Tatooine. Given our harshness in previous issues for similar setups, did this smack you as a bit ham-fisted? Yeah, a bit. They seem to use this, I'm alone flying through space and bored and shit, let me have a flashback device a lot. This is at least the third time they've used it in 17 issues, maybe more since we skipped ahead a few issues. The other times it was usually to give readers a last time on Star Wars type recap, which by today's standard feels super lame and ham-fisted, almost insulting to the reader. But back in the day, before direct market comic shops, let alone the internet, it was easy to miss a bunch of issues and there was really no way to find out what happened unless they did a recap like those. This one was different though. Right from the first panel, the writing alone is so much more mature and well done that I knew it wasn't going to be a cheesy flashback. I totally agree, but I felt given how harsh we were before, it seemed only fair to point out they do the same here. It wasn't only last time on Star Wars, mind you. At least once it was... Let's check in with these characters for a page so you don't forget they exist. It's handled totally different here. It's him reminiscing and appreciating where he came from and how much things have changed in the week since he left. So we head back to Tatooine. We get our first glimpse that this isn't going to be like the first ten issues. We see Luke actually bullseye a womp rat from his T-16. More than even the movie issues, to me it feels like for the first time... Somebody actually paid attention to the fucking movie. What do you think of that? Do you agree? Absolutely agree. The fact that you're actually seeing things that were alluded to in the film was really cool. And you're right, it's like somebody finally realized, hey, you know, we could in fact connect these comics to the movies. We don't always have to invent our own weird shit. 
I thought the Womp Rats were a great touch. I also liked that they even included Cammy and Fixer, who were ultimately cut from the movie. But those scenes were in the comic adaptation, see prior typecasts, so it was cool to bring them back and reinforce what Luke's circle of friends looked like. They didn't just create all new random people. I dug the Fixer mention, too. It's the first time that they actually make an attempt at a real continuity, and not just the weird random sci-fi shit they create on their own. I also liked how they spent time expanding a little on what the fuck they actually do on that farm. Not a lot of detail, really, but it helped paint the picture that this is serious business. Owen isn't just being a dick, it's really critical that Luke stay on top of his responsibilities. Yeah, it just works. I'm just gonna flat out say it. I love this issue because it has everything, man. With one small exception that I'll mention in just a second, this thing still plays well today. That one exception, though, is when Luke gets back to the farm, he asks to go to the Beggar's Canyon send-off for Biggs. Owen is about ready to shut that shit down when Baru steps in and says Biggs is Luke's best friend. Then she tells Owen that he let a brother leave without saying goodbye, obviously talking about Anakin. That totally gets a pass since this is pre-Empire and pre-prequel. So we know that Anakin and Owen were never close. But that was interesting. I like that when Owen left, Baru doesn't elaborate on it either. Does it make Owen seem like even slightly less of a dick, though? He seems like a bit of an asshole to me. In the movie, I can understand him not wanting Luke to go chase after that damn wizard. But here, Luke just wants to go have a little fun and say bye to an old friend. Owen is like, Fuck that! Work, boy! You saying that he's like, fuck your fun times, get to work, boy, makes me think maybe he's really not that much of a dick after all. Obi-Wan turns over this tiny little baby to Owen and Beru and is like, hey, keep an eye on this for me and make sure it doesn't get broken. They have to know who his father is, and even if they don't know he turned dark, which I always felt like Obi-Wan must have told them at some point, at the very least they know he was a reckless Jedi and got himself killed. I'd guess that Owen and Beru probably don't know that Anakin is Vader, but that Obi-Wan did tell them that Anakin was amongst the most powerful people in the galaxy, and that Vader and the Emperor might be looking to find powerful kids, or maybe even trying to find Anakin's kid. So now Luke grows up and he's hanging out with these people who are all going off to join the military and doing dangerous shit out in the desert and all that. I think more than anything, all of this dickish behavior is Owen trying to make sure Luke gets as little time to be with those people as possible, so that he doesn't even get the bug to leave the planet, much less join the military and get himself killed. They probably don't have detailed instructions from Obi-Wan or daily interaction with him, but I'm sure the prime directive was keep this boy safe and as anonymous as possible. Even when he says, oh by the way, this new droid belongs to Kenobi, they're immediately like, oh that dude's crazy, stay away from him. You know they know him, and they know he's not dangerous, but it's all about squashing anything Luke ever brings up so that he learns not to question anything. Owen is going to keep him trapped on that farm in his mind forever. So is he really a dick, or is he just playing a role? I tend to think it's a little of both. Judging by old man Lars and Ep 2 and the harsh life he's lived, Owen is bound to be grizzled and gruff, and, but at the same time I think most of his dickishness is really just him attempting to smother Luke for as long as possible. I agree that he probably said don't let Luke know that he might be one of the most powerful people in the galaxy, but I don't really understand how being an asshole is necessary. Gruffness for gruffness sake can, and as we saw with Luke, will sow seeds of dissent. Luke was almost resentful of Owen holding him back until Owen died. But now you have me wondering what that relationship between Kenobi and the Lars family was like, and when Owen started, in your words, playing this role. I mean, in the tail end of Dark Lord Rise of Lord Vader, there is a scene of Obi-Wan following them and watching them, and they seem like a happy family. And I know that's not canon, but I figure 
everything can be potential canon until they explicitly make it non-canon with a new story. So at what point did they go from happy family to, Luke, get your head out of the damn stars and get to working, you little shit? They show basically the same thing in the Kenobi novel. He would basically make the trip across the desert every few weeks and spy on them from a distance to make sure shit was going okay. So official canon or not, I don't think that book is canon either. I'd say it's pretty logical to assume that was happening. I mentioned earlier, and we'll get back to it eventually, but this issue had a lot of the same ideas in it that show up in Kenobi, so somewhere there's got to be some ounce of canon there. Which is kind of comforting if you think about it. No matter how many times they visit the theme, no matter which writer handles it, Obi-Wan remains the same. Let me know about those elements as they pop up. So Baru basically browbeats Owen into letting Luke head to Beggar's Canyon, and Luke heads off to work on his Skyhopper. While doing his tune-up, he slips into a daydream about swashbuckling across the galaxy and saving a girl. I mentioned this earlier, but I like the random sci-fi feel of this. It's almost definitely unintentional, but it really sells the fact that Luke has never broken Atmo before. He has no clue what it's really like out in the real war. What do you think of it? Even though I knocked the ship designs a little before, well, not really because I love that Buck Rogers show, I like this sequence, although it's funny when you think about it because it's a daydream within, essentially, another daydream. Chris Nolan stole Inception from this! I liked it, though. Kind of gives you a look inside his mind. Something similar to this is what I imagine is playing in his head during A New Hope as he's watching the sunset. I didn't think about that, but that's a great point. This very well could be what he was doing, just lost in thought, daydreaming of what is possible. I like that. And you're right, the funky ship designs and flight suits really lend to the idea that this kid knows jack shit about what real fighters look like. It's a great bit of unintended bonding of storytelling and art that plays well, even in this post-Clone Wars world of Star Wars. It works beautifully. Did you catch how they called him Commander Skywalker? It's cool when you realize the writers put that in a few years before he would be called that in Empire. A little unintentional foreshadowing, perhaps. I read it, but I didn't even really notice it. That is pretty cool. Seems to be a lot of unintended foreshadowing. Definitely. So what did you think about the Skyhopper race? Again, we get some creative synchronicity between this issue and something we'd see again decades later. I thought showing Luke in this race, while not as elaborate or dramatic, was very much the same thing we see Anakin doing in F1's pod race. Maneuvering through a course that's virtually impossible to survive with human reflexes. That was my very first thought as well. Pod racing runs in the family. My second thought was, huh, so he actually made the trench run before episode 4. Because think about it. The whole point of this skyhopper race is to get to the largest womp rat burrow which can only be approached through Beggar's Canyon. Only way to hit that exhaust port was through the trench. Unlike the last issues we read where Han made a trench run to destroy the giganto turd monster, this actually works well. It's an interesting little piece of action. This time it's all humans in the race, and by the end everyone has dropped out except for Luke and Biggs, which is cool to see them race each other, the two hottest pilots on the planet. However, what does that say about Biggs? Is he just a really good pilot, or could he maybe have a touch of Force sensitivity himself? Obviously, it wasn't enough to save him during the Death Star battle like it was for Luke, but since no one else but those two made it through the entire canyon, it makes me wonder. I don't think it means Biggs is Force sensitive because if it does, then you have to worry if Han is. Han has accomplished many more spectacular feats, and I feel pretty safe in saying that he has zero connection to the Force. I think Biggs is just that damn good. I think Obi-Wan would have sensed Biggs if he'd been Force-sensitive also. It's an interesting notion, but I think that's barking up the wrong tree. Touché. You make a good point there about Han not being Force-sensitive. It makes more sense that Biggs wouldn't be, 
that was all just wild speculation. So thus far, it's all been fun and games. Biggs won the race, Jawas got pissy because nobody wrecked, all's good in the hood. Until suddenly a militia scout crashes his speeder and warns of impending DOOM from Tusken Raiders. One question for you. The fuck is the militia? Aha. Yes, now we get to the heart of the matter and the biggest thing to me that connects this story to the Kenobi novel. In that book, they have local militias, kinda. They're basically like volunteer firemen. When one farm raises the alarm about a Tuscan attack, which apparently happens a lot, the other local farmers arm themselves and come a-running to help drive them off. Really? That's interesting. It's very Old West Frontiers Day type shit. Basically, they kind of depict the sand people like Native Americans and the moisture farmers like settlers in the Old West encroaching on their lands. That's a classic trope. And based on the reaction here in the Episode 2 novel, yeah, I'd say the Tuscans attack. A lot. I'm still a dozen or so novels away, but were there militiamen mentioned in the Episode 4 novel, or is this here the first mention of it? It's been a while since I've read the Ep4 novelization, but I'm pretty sure they don't mention any kind of militia. I think this comic is the first time. I think that's pretty fucking cool if this is the first mention, and then John Jackson Miller mentions it in Kenobi. Shows the dude knows his history. Fuck, I want to read that Kenobi book, man. But since it shows up again so far in the future, it makes me wonder if it was in some of GL's story notes. I can't imagine JJM used this as inspiration necessarily. It'd be such an obscure pull, but it could be that he was looking at the same notes on Tatooine that Claremont may have been given. Maybe. Again, wild speculation. Welp, I just asked John Jackson Miller on Twitter. You can find the tweet in the text version of this on my site. Hopefully by the end of this, we have a definitive answer from the man himself. One of the storylines of Kenobi is all from the point of view of a band of Tuscans, so you get to see how both worlds function. The farmers and the Tuscans. Feels very much like a western. Really? What was that like? I imagine their brains to be chaotic and disjointed, almost like an ADD puppy on speed. The sand people in that book were portrayed very much like indigenous people, a little more primal, very superstitious with strong traditions and their own cosmology and creation myths. It was pretty interesting. They were more normal and less monstrous than you'd think, given what we've seen in the films. Yeah, that's not what I'd expect at all, especially given what could have potentially happened to Anakin's poor mother. I'd think them to be unthinking, uncaring, unchecked beasts. What'd you think of the Tuscan using his gaffy stick as a projectile instead of just a club? I don't know what to think of that, honestly. Those sticks have always kind of confused me based on the design. They kind of look like javelins to me making it seem like the most logical way to utilize it would be as a projectile. But that curve at the end kind of shoots that down because it sort of fucks the aerodynamics of it all to hell. Unless you're at a close range like this. Also, given the weirdo shapes on the end of it, looks like it could be some sort of low-energy weapon. Like a blaster rifle meant to stun to prolong torture or something. That curve makes me think it could be used like a propeller, too. Swing it over your head and bring it down to crack some poor sap in the side of the mush. I always looked at those sticks as improvised weapons. I don't think they all look exactly the same, other than they're all blunt force club type weapons. They look to me like they're fashioned from salvage junk. Whatever bits of metal they found that look sharp, heavy, or pointy. Makeshift. I should have, but the look of them is just so strange that it seems like it could be anything from a lead pipe to some sort of energy weapon. It is a great design. Context. The Tuscans attack Luke and crew at their little post-race party after the militia dude warns them, then passes out or dies. 
not sure they made it clear what happened to him. One Tuscan chucks his stick at Biggs and hits him in the shoulder. Turns out, Filthy Prick dipped the stick tip in Sandbat Venom, which appears to be highly toxic. What you make of that turn of events? Of course it was dipped in poison. Haven't you ever seen a Cowboys and Indians picture? It's always dipped in poison. Seriously, though, it was a nice way, even though a little cliche, to introduce a time lock into the story. It wasn't dramatic enough that they needed to get into town quick to sound the alarm about the raiders coming. Now Luke has to fly the most impossible route through the canyon in order to save his best friend's life. For a couple of years, anyway. It seems like an unnecessary raising of the stakes. Not nearly as bad as the last arc we read, but still. The unflyable chasm should be enough of a challenge. Do you mind the whole, nobody has ever done it before, but Luke at least has to try thing? I think that may be the only thing that sticks out to me is a little too hokey. You know, given Luke just said something about how great Biggs was for making it through Beggar's Canyon, even when he couldn't. I think that's why the poisoning was necessary. It gave Luke no choice but to do the impossible or die trying. As a result, he finds out that he's capable of greater things than being a farmer, and that even when something seems impossible, there's always a chance to succeed. It really is the trench run, and seeing how he aced this, you can see where all that bravado and confidence came from when they attacked a the Death Star. This story kind of shows you that it wasn't all just him being young and naive. I'll be honest, I'm only trying to poke a hole just so we don't come off as blinded fanboy slobbering on the balls of this book just for cause it says Starry Wars all up on the covery part. Is his family being in grave peril not enough of a reason to die trying though? Does he need yet another reason to rush home? Do we really need to risk his super best bud who's just going to eat it in a few years? No, we don't need it, but it did make it cool. And also, all this Biggs talk just made me realize something I never really considered. As if their relationship isn't crazy enough, Luke's father killed his best friend. Let that sink in for a second. That's a fact that totally gets lost in the, oh my god, he kissed his sister conversation. You know, until I started talking with you for these typecasts a year ago, I never really paid attention to Biggs. To me, he was just a dude that Luke used to know years back on the Dust Bowl planet. But talking to you, he's kind of become a more important character, even though he gets dead in the trench run saving Luke's bacon. It's pretty clear you always dug him, though, and it kind of rubs off. I'm not sure that I dig him so much as I obsess over the tiniest details of these movies to an unhealthy degree. Plus, there was always kind of a mystique about him because almost all of his scenes were cut and decades went by spent wondering what he was like on Tatooine, what was their friendship like, etc. That lack of information feeds the imagination. Even now, with the inclusion of some of that cut footage, you still don't get very much information. So things like this comic are cool because it adds to the non-canon stuff that I've built up in my head about him over the years. I'm not saying you want to get your hair and nails did and take Biggs out for dinner and see where the evening takes you, but you seem to have a particular interest in him because of the total blackout and detail for him. I mean, I was trying to find details on him being in some old novels, and I didn't really see much. So, of course, it would cause your imagination to build a history based on their short interactions. But yeah, that is pretty fucked up that Dear Daddy Vader basically kills almost every one of the folks that Luke cares about from the old country, if you will. Mentor old Ben, best friend Biggs, depending on what theory you want to believe, he also killed or ordered the hit on Amperu and Uncle Ben. This Vader dude is kinda a dick. I don't think we said it, but Luke does the impossible and makes it through Beggar's Canyon only to come upon some of those attacking Tuscans. How's that tickle your fancy? I thought the way Luke came up through Devil's Ass Crack or whatever they called that exit from the canyon and shot past a bunch of Tuscans was cool. I liked how they used the surprise Tuscans to illustrate how incredible this was. 
the way they point out that the Tuscans in all their history have never seen anyone come through that cut in the canyon wall was a nice touch. Aye, me too. If you look close, they seem to be just blind firing because they were so surprised. It sells the whole thing and brings it home as Luke streaks through the sky with them firing up his afterburner, causing a fiery crash landing at the Lars homestead. And then, just like we kind of talked about earlier, Luke even says to himself, this felt like some kind of a test. Which then leads into a flash forward to the trench run before Han snaps him back to reality aboard the Falcon in the present. And that page that shows the stuff what happened in episode 4 is just a stunner. Better than the art in those issues. Okay, I gotta ask, and you did sort of touch on it earlier when talking about Luke's trench run bravado, but does this in any way cheapen episode 4 for you? Does it make Luke's journey in that movie seem less impressive to you at all? Because I'm of two minds on it. Not really. It makes it more believable to me. Especially when you add in the information you get from episode 1. To me, it connects him more to Anakin, which is something you don't get much of just from the movies. It shows he's more than just a good pilot. There's something special there. When he says, hey, this Death Star Trench is no big deal, this issue makes that seem more believable that he would actually feel that way. But when the shit hits the fan, you still get to see him realize that, oh no, this is not just like Beggar's Canyon at all. He almost immediately finds out that, yeah, maybe the trench run itself is the same and hitting a two-meter target, but doing it while trying to evade train killers all around you is something else entirely. That is my dominating thought. It actually makes a lot of shit in A New Hope make way more sense. As I said at the start, somebody, probably Claremont, paid attention to the movie and just figured, fuck it, let's make these references mean something. And it totally works. This isn't me just looking for a flaw so we don't sound like Marvel slash Star Wars zombies. I feel this is a legit point. What makes Luke's story in A New Hope so interesting is that he's a good mechanic and he's a good speeder pilot. But once you insert all these impressive feats into his background, it almost feels like, what's the big deal? He's basically done this before. This time he's just getting shot at the whole time and not just at the last moment. Again, I agree that it doesn't, but I think that's something to consider for a moment. I could see where someone might take it that way. Turns out John Jackson Miller came up with it himself, but he later found mentions of militias in the Tatooine Galaxy Guide. I saw that. Awesome. Go straight to the source. At least we don't have to waste any more time speculating. The wonderful world we live in. You can go straight to an author and ask all the questions you'd ever desire to know the answers to. A lot of authors gladly answer, too. Our last scene is, as you touched on before... Han coming into the cockpit of the Falcon to take over for Luke in a scene that's actually kind of sweet. Han tells Luke that he knows Luke must want to get out of the pilot seat because hours at the controls can be pretty boring. And Luke tells him maybe someday he'll get tired, but today's not that day. How did that hit you? Also, there's one thing on this last page that we've both bitched about in the past. Can you spot it? I thought it was a cool little scene. It reminded me of something out of Firefly. The boredom of piloting in deep space all alone. I didn't make the Firefly connection, but that's a very apt way to describe it. I thought the don't get space happy line by hand was dismal. I had my own flashback to the Roy Thomas arc we read before. Ugh. You just hit the nail on the head. I read space happy and it made me cringe so fucking hard. It definitely didn't ruin the issue, but I had hoped we'd move past that shit. Yeah, that line was fucking awful. It almost ruins the rest of the issue. It's like getting to the bottom of a delicious ice cream sundae and finding a dog turd. I didn't think it was that damaging, but at least you gave us all a good visual image. The design of the Falcon looked a bit off. Yeah, the Falcon has a lot less detail than we'd expect. I flipped ahead quite a few times, and we'll see that again. A lot. 
The Falcon looks really flat and smooth like it has the same skin as an old World War II bomber. At least that's what these comics make me think of. Carmine Infantino, who takes over from Howard Chaikin after the series of issues we covered previously, was really bad, or good, about that. The Star Destroyers are the same. They look perfectly triangular and their surfaces are very smooth, almost like glass. It's weird because I think the Infantino art is some of my favorite, but his spaceships are never quite right. I wonder if it was him or his co-artists, because I looked and it's pretty rare that he did the issues alone. Bob Wyacek seems to be the most frequent co-artist. I can see somebody of Infantino's stature wanting to do the character stuff and leaving the rest to somebody else. I do dig what I've seen of Carmine's art, though. It's great shit. It's weird. Wyacek was usually an inker, so I thought maybe that was the co-artist part, but looking him up at comicbookdb.com, it doesn't look like they have him credited on this issue at all. So then it makes me wonder if he did the layouts or something, or like you said, maybe the ships and the non-character stuff. Keep in mind that this issue is Herb Trimpey and Al Milgram. Next issue is where Infantino came back, with Gene Day for that issue. And the detail on that opening page is pretty good, but let's save that for another day. Carmine Infantino just died recently, a couple of years ago. It was a bummer because I would have liked to meet him. Yeah, even at 24, I've reached the age where a lot of the folks that I'd like to meet are starting to go. Well, my good sir, we've reached the end of this story. Is there anything else you'd like to say about this issue for the folks listening? No, I'm spent. This was a fun read with some interesting concepts and nice art. I give it 7 out of 10 Womp Rats. I hate giving scores, but I might go even higher. This is without a doubt the best issue of the old run that I've read. As we close, I want to say something really quick. By the time this goes up, it will have been one year since I launched my site and this whole typecast concept, and you've been extremely instrumental in that. Counting this one, you've done nine of these now, covering a wide range of topics, 90% of which fall within the broad theme of Star Wars. I've had many great guests. At Spider Scooby. At TESD Groupie. At Scooby Addict. At Scooby Snacks Com. And at Memum Steve Dave. There was also at Join to Follow, but we try to forget about him. But none of the guests have been as great as you. And that's not even to mention the help you've given me on the videos and shit in that time. And much more. So thanks for all of that. I know for a fact my site wouldn't have nearly as many visitors without you, my good sir. Are the mics off? Should I zip up my pants now? I think so. This has been a feature of JJ2E Media and... TSDJA Productions.